Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on a cool autumn day here in the capital is Annabelle Berry. Annabelle is the CEO at Sapphire, a provider of data assurance services and best of breed security solutions to both the public and private sectors. Um, Annabelle, very warm welcome to you today and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for inviting me, Scott. It's a real pleasure having you on the airwaves alongside me, and it's certainly turning into quite a nice day for it. Um, Normally at this point in the programme, Annabelle, we tend to dive into the subject of leadership and bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, which has hung over as like a dark cloud throughout 2020, I think it's appropriate that we start the, uh, the discussion from that angle, because it's proven to be such a huge challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourself, just to what extent has it affected things for you and your business? Well, you're right. I mean, it's been such a rapid and extreme change in such a short space of time for all of us, really, and, and, and something that's happened so quickly and such a huge change in both our personal and professional lives across the board. And I think, obviously, it's had the impact on us as an organisation initially very quickly um, in terms of uh, moving to the whole organisation, working from home, which was a, was a huge change for us. Luckily, as a technology company, we had sort of invested in systems in the cloud over the last couple of years that meant that we could do that very quickly. Um, but it was a real balancing act for us in the first couple of months, trying to get underway with the new way of working and balancing the increased level of threats that we were seeing out there. Um, obviously, as, as everyone moved to working from home as a cybersecurity company, we were seeing that the threat to businesses um, and individuals were significantly increasing, especially in the first couple of months. So it was a real balance in terms of making sure that the organization and the staff and their health and safety and well-being was all taken care of, as well as making sure that, that we were there for our customers to support them at the time that many of them critically needed us um, as they were migrating to, to their staff working from home, many mm-hmm. of whom were, were not as easily geared up to working from home as we were. And then also then having to combat the additional threats that we were seeing um, that the criminals were taking advantage of. Um, So the first couple of months were were a real challenge for us, if if I'm honest, from, from that perspective, getting that balance right. Yes, exactly. Because working from home isn't a one size fits all approach, is it? And it does. Sometimes people do forget come with its own set of challenges and security in particular is certainly one of those. Just making sure that that increased vulnerability to cyber attacks, for example, is indeed accounted for. And um, there's a great debate at the moment, isn't there, Annabelle, about what is to become of our working practices in the long term, even when COVID-19 is no longer an issue. And based upon what you've seen over the last few months, do you think we'll ever see a return to offices as we knew them in vogue or do you think that home working perhaps might be the future i believe it'll probably be a hybrid of 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 the two i don't think we'll ever return on mass to our offices as as we were before all all of this and i think some of the benefits that we've seen um, around working from home have really demonstrated that it's one it's possible two it's possible for people to still be as productive and actually the work-life balance that I think a lot of people have seen as, as, a, as a benefit, really, to the situation that we found ourselves in has been something I think that many people want to continue. But I also mm. have a number of staff who are really um, keen to get back to the offices and, and are missing the, the teamwork together and, mm. and the social interaction that comes with that. So I think it'll probably be a, a hybrid model that, that we get back to um, eventually. I think that's not to say that some offices uh, in some organisations won't close, but I think we'll find a new level, I think, which is a mix of, of both, which I think is probably right for, for, for the future workforce, I think. I can certainly see where you're coming from from that point of view, because there are mental health and wellbeing arguments um, on both sides of 
being able to work from home and also having an office space to go in and actually interact with people for certain and just alleviate that social isolation element of this. And um, just thinking about that just in, in a little bit more detail with regards to the home working transition, how was it for you sort of acting as a leader, not just from a distance, but also actually safeguarding mental health and well-being of your staff from a distance as well? Because I can imagine that that came as a new challenge. It did. And I think it was having to consider not only the physical health, self, safety and well-being of the staff, but also, as you say, you know, their, their, their mental health as well. And I, I, I believe that's something that is going to be with us for some time yet in terms of the challenges that, um, that we're, we're seeing across the board, um, certainly in that arena. And it's something that we've, we've had to look at more closely within our organisation and make sure that the levels of communication uh, we're still going ahead. It was a real change for me. I'm a very active chief exec. Usually I'm, I, I spend or had spent the majority of my time uh, going around the various offices that we have in the UK, being around the, the teams, interacting with uh, the people within the organization. So all of a sudden being sat at home with uh, myriads of Zoom and team calls was, was, was a new thing for me to mm. get used to. And learning how to get that level of communication right, I think. Um, and I think a lot of leaders that I spoke to at that time found it quite difficult to be able to read, engage how the workforce were doing, how the teams were doing. You know, um, sometimes it's very difficult to do that over a, over a virtual call. Mm. Much easier to do that, obviously, physically when you're sat in a room with people and, and, and seeing how people are responding to what's being said, particularly in the early months where there was a lot of anxiety about what was going to happen, a lot of changes going on within organizations and perhaps furloughing and things like that. Um, and the types of conversations that as a leader, you would never dream of having over a, over a call or over a, a virtual session online. Mm. It's absolutely something that you'd want to be sat in the room with people and having that connection. Um, and I think we've had to rally and find ways of making sure that that personal connection is still there um, and that, that that was being communicated. I think the benefit that's come out of it is, is actually across our organization, communication has improved, I would say. Um, teams who were in different offices are communicating a lot more effectively, I mm. think, than we probably were before, partly because we're, we're embracing technologies that we've had for a while but perhaps weren't using because we were still relying on face-to-face meetings. So I think there have been some good things to come out of this, but I think certainly in the mm. early days, making sure that the communication was little and often. Um, and I started doing video uh, updates for the company on a reasonably regular basis just to make sure that they could see see me uh, giving an update, giving you know, keeping them as in the loop as I, as I possibly could. Mm. Um, and the feedback I had from that was 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 very positive. Um, so I think leaders have had to find you know, new ways of making sure that we're communicating effectively and addressing some of the concerns that people obviously had. Mm. It's prompted a real change of the whole sort of leadership style of individuals, hasn't it, during this time to get used to this new way of doing things and keeping the communication channels open, as you say, is so, so important. So it's a very, very important facet of leadership, in fact. And um, just thinking about um, those younger and aspiring um, leaders that may be actually tuning into the podcast today and just sort of looking on at the economic impacts of COVID-19 and may well be a little bit downhearted by the whole situation. Do you have any sort of messages of advice or encouragement for them as to what they should be doing during this time? I think it, this situation this year has put leadership in the spotlight, actually, and I don't think that's mm. a bad thing. I think leadership, it, leaders are more under the microscope now than they ever have been before, and I think we've had to adapt at a faster pace than we ever had, have, have had to before, certainly with the situation changing um, in terms of working from home, and I think that's a good thing. I mean, there's lots of, been, lots of discussion in the press about what good leadership looks like mm. um, this year. And a lot of that is, is based around um, what I would call transformational leadership styles, which is, you know, based on um, higher emotional intelligence, empathy, integrity, authenticity, and things like that. And I think, um, and I think that's the positive thing. Um, I think understanding, yes, absolutely business has to go ahead and we have to try and uh, forge ahead with, with results and change our strategies very quickly and adapt and, and move forward. But I think there's an, also an opportunity to be innovative at this time. We've, we've seen more projects being delivered 
more quickly, um, not only within our own organization, but also within our clients. Um, and it really demonstrates what we can do um, when perhaps we're, we're under more pressure. Not that anybody wants to be delivering those types of projects under this kind of mm. pressure moving forward. But I think it's shown that we can innovate and move forward. And I think it's called for a different type of leadership style mm. that isn't based perhaps on traditional hierarchical um, leadership and authority is based on actions and values and trust and honesty. And I think that's perhaps more fitting for the workforce uh, of the future than, than, than perhaps we've seen over the past couple of decades, certainly. Mm, can certainly see where you're coming from from that point of view, Annabelle. And um, thinking just about leadership in a broader sense, um, we have seen so much criticism of, um, of course, political leadership throughout this time. There have been some positive um, elements um, of um, that as well during the way that the pandemic has been managed. But on the whole, do you think that leadership itself is perhaps as celebrated as much as it should be in this country? Well, I think it's it's interesting. I think we there was a the Edelman's Trust Barometer report for 2020 was showing that CEOs and employers were were rated leaders within businesses were were, were rated higher than perhaps uh, government, the, the media, mm. um, and NGOs this year. And and trusted employers had had risen. It, it'll be interesting to see what that report looks like in in 2021 with a lot of obviously hard decisions having to be made this year. But I think there have been some really good examples of really good, positive, strong leadership this year. And I think the people who work for those organizations where that's been demonstrated will 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 look to stay at those organizations and mm. that will be championed. And I think there will be a lot of people who, who vote with their feet after we, we emerge the other side of this where they've, they've worked for organizations perhaps where they haven't seen that. Um, and so I think we've seen perhaps two polarized types of leaders in, in, in many cases, I think. But, um, and there's been lots of discussions about what makes up that good leader and, and, and what type of attributes they have. Um, I've been involved in a few discussions about the fact that female leaders appear to have done very well this year or, or, mm. or appeared to have done very well this year. And I think it's less to do with that. I think it's more to do with leadership style and, and attributes and just being in touch with what people are experiencing. After all, you know, we've, we're in a situation now that is impacting jobs, our health, our finances, our families, our children. You know, we haven't mm. been in a scenario where, where all of these things have been under such a huge microscope. And leaders have got to take into consideration that all of those things, that people are having lots of anxieties and, and worries around all of those areas at the moment. Um, and so there has to be compassionate leadership as much as we've got to navigate the challenges and as they continue to produce the right type of results. But I think you can combine those two things. Mm, you certainly can. And um, it's interesting that you do mention um, that female leaders seem to have excelled in the uh, the last year. One name that certainly does spring to mind when you say that is Jacinda Ardern, of course, the uh, New Zealand mm. Premier, um, who has come under a lot of uh, praise for um, her response to the uh, the COVID-19 situation. Of course, very unique circumstances to what we faced here in the uh, the UK, albeit. But she has done very, very well and um, has recently just uh, won another term there. So clearly uh, she's very much um, on the right pathway and has the support of uh, people down there. Um, and thinking about figures of her real cannibal, um, just um, before we do sort of move on toward the end of our discussion, are there any sort of leadership figures out there that have maybe served as inspirations to you as you've developed through your career and gone on to lead your own business? I'm fortunate, I think perhaps not so much on the global stage, but I'm fortunate to be involved in a few leadership forums and um, and I've been privileged to meet a lot of UK leaders, chief execs from all different types of sectors over the last couple of years. And those, I think, are the people that tend to inspire me. Those um, luckily involved, you know, lucky to be involved in, in those types of organizations. I found that extraordinarily helpful this year, particularly because um, certainly in the early months of lockdown, being able to talk to other leaders who were experiencing the same types of challenges and to be able to share and get advice from a trusted group of people, I think, who are mm. doing the same job as you are, I think is invaluable. So I think there's a lot of inspiring chief execs out there in the UK workforce, but 
are doing a phenomenal job and are leading with, you know, all of the attributes that I talked about, mm. you know, just now the values, the authority, you know, the authority that's based on actions um, and authenticity and trust. And, uh, and those are the people that I've really learned from over the last couple of years mm. and privileged to spend time in their company, I think. So I would say probably the people that are in my, my leadership networks, I think, are the people who've, who've really inspired me, perhaps more so than, than the, very, the very public figures. So. Um, that is very, very important as well, especially for any aspiring entrepreneurs that may well be tuning into this, because one of the best things that you can do is network with other business leaders, because we can all learn from each other. Leadership isn't about being a lone wolf and building an empire of your own. You can look to other people. You can look to resources that they've put together. You can learn from them. And ultimately, so much about leadership is about learning. And for so many business leaders who have had to pivot and adapt to this pandemic and its challenges, like we've already discussed they have described it very much as a learning curve almost like being back in business for the first time having to go back to basics having to look for new income streams and um, that just goes to show that so much of leadership is about trial and error learning and you can do much worse than go to others to try and find advice and even mentorship as well completely agree i mean we're all human at the end of the day you know we're, we're all you know we make mistakes we, we make good decisions we make mistakes i think as a leader, the key is to make sure that you learn from the mistakes that you've made um, and to make sure where possible that they don't happen again, I think, and to move forward and, and to review what's happened on a regular basis. And I'm a, a great believer in self-learning and self-developing um, and making sure that, you know, there is no finished article, I think, in terms of leadership, that you're continuing to, to evolve and develop yourself and learning from the situations and you know, it's not about never never making a mistake or, you know, not reading a situation correctly. Um, of course, we all do that. Um, we, we're under the same pressures as everybody else is in, in, in that respect. Um, but I think it's what you do at those points that, that makes you stand out as a leader um, and how you deal with that. And, you know, I think that's things like addressing that, mm. about holding your hands up and saying those things have happened sometimes. Um, but more importantly, coming up with a way that navigates that forward, though you take that as a learning opportunity and you move forward and you improve um, and you make sure that you don't make those mistakes again where possible. And just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme now, Annabelle, um, if we talk about what is to come in future, we know that over the next 12 months, um, we're going to have to get through quite a difficult winter before we can even think about the long term. But if we could just maybe pretend we have a crystal ball for a moment and look forward into the next year, what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved at Sapphire? And where do you want the business to be this time in 12 months, ideally, in this uncertain landscape? Well, as I mentioned earlier on, the, the challenge around cybersecurity has, has really increased significantly um, this year under the conditions that we found ourselves in with this pandemic. And, you know, even last year, the World Economic Forum was citing cybersecurity cyber in the top five global threats, um, you know, up there against you know, famine and, and, and flooding and things like that. Um, and it is a real threat to, to businesses. And I think we've seen that this year more so than any, any other year. And so for Sapphire, we are continually moving forward to make sure that we are delivering the right services and solutions that our customers need us to be doing, which, which protects them in the best way possible against the threats that we're seeing. So we are launching a number of new services early on next year, um, specifically around helping organizations and managing their security services to help protect against the threats that we're seeing and and the good news is that i think some of the threats that we are seeing are are, are preventable um but it takes a lot of education around people and culture within those businesses i think to help that as well and we're a little way off so those will be the things that we'll be concentrating on for next year um we are still growing as an organization we consider ourselves to be extremely fortunate that we are um particularly mm. in the current economic environment um, and but the cyber threats continue and they will continue and they will evolve and Sapphire needs to continue to, to, to evolve and meet those threats and help our, our customers be on the forefront and protect themselves against those emerging threats that we'll see into next year. So, so more services, more technologies to come from us next year um, and 
it's you know for us as a business is exciting times even though we're under difficult trading conditions at the mm. moment there are lots of opportunities and ways that we can innovate moving forward there certainly are there's always an opportunity in every single crisis and it's just about making sure that one can capitalize on those opportunities as and when they do arise and it seems as if there's plenty out there for you to be getting your teeth stuck into over the next few months uh, because there will be those cyber threats out there particularly as the remote working transition continues and you are going to have to be in a position to uh, help people get over those and that's absolutely fantastic it's a brilliant mission and i think annabelle just given just how many variables there still are in all of this and how the pandemic could ultimately pan out i do think it would be fantastic fantastic to catch up at some point in the future and welcome you back onto the show just to see how things are starting to come along in a year's time. I'd be delighted to do that, Scott. That'd be great. I'd thoroughly welcome that opportunity as well because it's been very enlightening welcoming you onto the programme with us this afternoon and sharing your views. And uh, most importantly as well, until we do hopefully get to speak again, please do take care and stay safe with all that's still going on. And that goes for everybody at Sapphire as well. And you, Scott. Thanks ever so much. That also goes for all of the listeners tuning into today's podcast as well. Please do continue to be sensible, look after yourselves, stay well and be considerate of others because it does make such a difference in saving lives at this time. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Annabelle Berry, CEO at Sapphire, onto today's programme. Next up on the show, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Now, Lord Blunkett's political exploit saw him elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015. His distinguished political career saw him serve as the Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough MP for 28 years, and he also held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership, and he managed all of that despite being blind from birth. I hope that you all enjoy listening to the interview just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett himself, and that will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both 
the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in 
maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings. Uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding 
my only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. 
there's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a 
a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just 
the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.